to Essential Insights, a podcast for healthcare professionals. My name is Cassidy, and I'm your podcast host for the Hospice and Home Care Webinar Network. Today's episode is an audio clip from a webinar presented by Gary Guardia and is titled Raising the Bar for Bereavement Counseling and Services, New Approaches, Services, and Skill Sets. Today's speaker began his hospice career as a volunteer over 40 years ago. Since then, he has worked in many capacities, leading a variety of teams and departments, including volunteers, social workers, bereavement, and education. Gary holds master's degrees in both education and social work and is a licensed clinical social worker. Today's quick insight will review the State Operations Manual Appendix M and how to incorporate this into your own program to make sure you pass your surveys with flying colors. If you want to learn more about this topic after the podcast, please see the notes for a registration link and a coupon for 10% off the on-demand webinar. Without further ado, let's jump right in. There is the Medicare Conditions of Participation. If you go online, I've given you a link to that, the final rule. But then there's also a State Operations Manual Guidance to Surveyors. And so what happens is the surveyors take this document with them, and that's been um, updated recently, I forget, 20 or 21 or something, 1920 or 1921. Um, but they take that document with them to go out to your organization and conduct a survey and has a lot of additional information like this. This list is not contained in the Medicare conditions of participation, but it is very specific in the guidance to surveyors. So essentially what they're saying is, here are things that should be included, not limited to this, but some of the things we might want to include in a bereavement risk assessment. Are there past drug and alcohol or current drug alcohol abuse going on? Are there other health concerns for maybe a bereaved person? Are there legal and financial concerns, mental health issues? But this is their list. Because it's Medicare's list, we would want to make sure and include this in, in our assessment. So what Medicare says, so this red at the bottom is Medicare language, not mine. Medicare says these issues may not be readily apparent during the initial bereavement risk assessment, but should be incorporated into the hospice plan of care if they become evident and must be considered in the bereavement plan of care. So once again, it's stressed over and over again um, from Medicare a bereavement plan of care shouldn't be stagnant. It's not something you do once and then that's the plan of care you use forever. It should be updated as whenever there's any information. So a, a surveyor could look at the bereavement plan of care and let's say initially somebody decided this, this person or persons are low risk, but then they go through the documentation in the chart and the documentation in the chart from other team members is talking about dynamics that could be considered high risk. So if the documentation in the chart is pointing out high risk and the bereavement risk assessment still says low risk, you have a problem. So make sure that as, as team members are documenting higher risk behaviors, the bereavement plan of care gets updated. So questions to consider, and then this is again, guidance for, for the surveyors and you. So it comes from that document. How and when do you incorporate the bereavement assessment into the comprehensive assessment? So they will be asking that. They're, they're asking how and when. What services do you provide to reflect the needs of the family and other individuals in the bereavement plan of care? And how do you evaluate the outcomes and effectiveness of your bereavement program? So 
it's an important question. How do you? You need to be able to answer this question, and you need to have an answer to this question readily available if you're surveyed. How do you evaluate the outcomes and effectiveness? So if you sent three letters, some, let's say someone was medium risk, you sent three letters, never heard back, how are you evaluating the effectiveness of those letters, those mailings? Did you ever follow up with a phone call, for example? Um, but you need to be able to answer that question. So let's talk about risk very briefly. Um, again, these are just uh, some, some indicators of risk and high risk. Excessive feelings of guilt, suicidal ideation, poor coping skills, social isolation, we know is an indicator potentially of high risk. I mean, I know people who get energized from being alone. <laughs> they would prefer to be socially isolated. So that in itself does not mean any level of risk, but is this social isolation something that's harmful or helpful to the person? Um, and at the last one, unable, unwilling to relocate. Now that, that comes from Bill Warden's uh, model for his task model for grief and loss, William Morden. And, and it's, it's our, our ability or willingness to relocate the person who has died um, that, that we, the, we are able to allow that person to move on to wherever people go after they die and us to move on with our life. So he, he uses the term relocate. We've, I, maybe we've all met people, I certainly have, who were unable to do that. They still talked about them as if they were alive. They, you know, the, everything about um, their demeanor and their language says, this person, I'm not letting them go. They're still here with me. And you know, there's, there's healthy ways of doing that. There's healthy ways of, I just talked to a friend who's, whose partner died and he was saying, um, I just, I kind of just listen and my partner who, who has died gives me um, insight into what I should be doing next with my life or where I should be going next with my life. It, he knew that his partner had died. I mean, it's very clear that he had died. He knew that the, his partner had moved on, but he kind of hangs on to him in a way that I don't know for certain because this was just a very brief conversation in a way that appeared to me to be kind of healthy. I keep him around and I listen to him talking to me. And I think, I think what he was saying, I didn't ask any questions, so I don't know for sure this was just a social gathering. But I think what he was saying is I kind of listened to what I think he would have said because he always gave me wonderful guidance. So I listened to what I think he would have said and then I decide, you know, if I want to act on that. So that sounded good to me. Again, I can't know for certain without you know, engaging in some level of counseling, which was not what I was doing at the time. But I think I think there are ways that it can be helpful and harmful, um, but it's something to pay attention to. Um, and some additional risk influences, uh, you know, certainly challenging, difficult, problematic family dynamics or concurrent life crisis. I remember we had a person on our program who who was dying and when I went out as a social worker to talk to them, they said, yes, dad's death is difficult for all of us. But two months ago, um, we had our grandchildren over that we were taking care of them. And one of our grandkids fell in our swimming pool and drowned. 
um, that has been much more traumatic for our family. So that's a concurrent loss. Certainly the death of the family was difficult for them, but this uh, drowning in the swimming pool seemed to be taking all of this family's energy and attention and grief and so is there something else going on that's contributing so standalone interventions to avoid now keep in mind that nothing on this list is negative in any way there's nothing negative about any of these things on the list they're only negative if they stand if if this is all you are doing when risk is elevated. So again, if risk is elevated and what you do is refer to a community professional. So again, I just say, let's say this is your loved one on a program in another state who calls you and says, I'm suicidal. And you call the this hospice program and say, they just told me they're suicidal. I'd like for you to do something about it. And what they did was give a list of three names to community professionals, and then your loved one ended up taking their life. Would you not be upset? And rightfully so. Uh, so again, just a referral to a community professional when the risk is high isn't enough. A mailing isn't enough. Supportive telephone call. I'm just calling to offer you support is not enough. An invitation to a support group is not enough. Some people say, I provide presence, not enough. Even if you are face-to-face -face with this person, presence isn't adequate if somebody is, for example, suicidal. You have to be saying, have you, have you, how serious are you? Do you have a plan? Do you have the means? Um, have you thought about when you're going to do this? Just sitting and being present doesn't cut it. I mean, we should be present with everything that we do, always. Active listening, we should always be engaging in active listening. But when risk is elevated, we need to move to a higher skill level. And we need to know what that higher skill level is. So does it matter if the high-risk person is 13 or 95? And I've heard people say, well, the guy's wife died. They had been married for 80-some years. Um, and and now he's talking about he doesn't want to eat anymore or he wants to end his life or whatever whatever it might be and i've heard people say well he's 95 years old you know what does it matter and then i say well what if the person was 13 years old what if this was a 13 year old saying dad was everything to me mom died when i was born he was my whole life i'm gonna have to go to care someplace and um I don't want to live without my dad. Is there a difference? Should we be more concerned about the 13-year-old than the 95-year-old? I always say, no, it doesn't matter how old somebody is. I, I hear us saying that all the time. Well, she's 13. It's a 13-year-old girl. We have to get out there. We have to do something as if age matters. And I think whoever it is in experiencing severe pain, we need to be there for them. Um, if if your answer is, yeah, well, I, we would be more diligent with a 13-year-old than a 95-year-old, I would just like for you to think about that. Um, because I'd say, then what's the cutoff date? Would it be 80? Are you okay with an 80-year-old person being suicidal? Would it be a 60-year-old? Would you be a little more diligent with a 60-year-old, a 50-year-old? What's the cutoff date then? Um, when do you stop being less, start being less diligent? Um, at what age? And I think once we have to answer that question, it, it kind of becomes 
clearer what's happening. So do you know about broken heart syndrome? It's also called stress cardiomyopathy, and it's an interesting event that occurs. It's when sudden and severe acute stress occurs. It can quickly harm the muscles of the heart. So it's not the same as a heart attack, you know, where there's heart disease. A broken heart syndrome has been documented. It has a couple other names. Uh, it's, it's, it's when we experience a severe and acute stress event, and it, it actually damages the heart. Now, many of us might know this as this thought, that you know a couple has been together for many, many years, madly in love. One of them dies, and two weeks later, the other person dies. And, and, and we saw that so often that it, it got the name broken heart syndrome. And then as people started studying what this actually was that was occurring, they realized it's called stress cardiomyopathy. Extreme stress caused heart damage. There's some research out there that I have read and I couldn't find it this time that says it actually happens more often in younger couples than older couples. Um, but you know, what the current research says is postmenopausal women make up 90% of stress cardiomyopathy cases, but it can happen to anyone at any age. So it's just something we need to watch out for when we're, when we're talking about acute stress that can happen at the, because of or related to the death of a loved one. Um, we, we have to, you know, I keep saying, you know, giving people a list of phone numbers or a couple mailings doesn't cut it. We, we, we should be more diligent and skillful. So depending on the situation, consider starting here. And, and these are just some statements I came up with. Please reword them. I, I, I've just come up with some you know, kind of broad um, range statements to consider. Everyone experiences loss in life, and I know you have too. That's my kind of first thought. We, we've all experienced loss. I also know that the loss you are experiencing right now is not like anything else you've ever experienced before because I know no two losses are the same. So again, that's a fact. What I'm saying is you've experienced loss before. This loss is different. I know that. And I know you have somehow managed to come through past losses. And I know that because you're sitting right here in front of me. So I know that you've experienced loss before and you have made it through because here you are. So how have you done this? Specifically, how have you made it through these past losses? So essentially what I'm doing here is essentially just stating some facts. I know you've had past losses. Um, I know this loss isn't the same as those. I, I know you have made it through past losses in the, because you're, you're here with me. How did you do this? And I'm, what I'm trying to figure out and what I'm trying to say to this person is, you have some skills. You have some ability to get through loss. What is it? What are those skills? What is that ability? How did you get through loss before? And, and is there a way to use some of that right now? So essentially, I'm asking a person to provide counseling to themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm providing guidance, and this is a a counseling technique, a very specific, specific strength-based technique. Um, and I would, I would document that I provided grief counseling as I'm having this conversation with somebody. But in a sense, what I'm saying to them is, you know how to do this. You've done it before. 
uh, how can you do it again now? Keeping in mind, this loss is not the same as past losses. So we're going to have to have a conversation about this might have worked for past loss losses. How do we need to adapt it or apply it to this loss? So that's kind of where the work lies in this model. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can register for the on-demand webinar titled Raising the Bar for Bereavement Counseling and Services, New Approaches, Services, and Skill Sets. The on-demand webinar is available now to view and download. Podcast listeners can enter coupon code RAISINGTHEBAR into their shopping cart for 10% off the webinar. Don't forget to check out the show notes where you can find the coupon code for this on-demand webinar as well as links to our LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to give us a follow and use your favorite podcast platform for the next episode of Essential Insights. Before I close the podcast, I'd like to thank our state association partners, Gary Gardia, and you, the listener, the essential worker. Thank you for all that you do for the healthcare community. Be safe and take care.